1: Thanks for tuning in to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Jay Lockenauer. It's my pleasure today to speak with Robert M. Satino. He's an historian at the University of North Texas and the author of Death of the Wehrmacht, the German Campaigns of 1942, published by the University of Kansas Press. Uh, This book originally came out in 2007, but it's recently been reissued in paperback form, so that gives me the excuse to uh, review it here on this site. It also gives me the excuse to uh, talk to one of my favorite German military historians. The strength of Satino's work, I mean, this is a, a story that in Many people, I'm sure many of the listeners of this site, will be uh, familiar, at least in broad terms. I mean, the, the story of the German army in the east... Uh, the debacle at Stalingrad that uh, begins in 1942 and reaches its terrible climax in 1943 is probably pretty familiar. Um, this book also covers Rommel's campaigns in North Africa that, that have been the subject of numerous books and, of course, movies and and so forth, uh, discussing these campaigns. But if you think you know everything about what happened to the German army in 1942, uh, you'll find out that you're wrong when you read this book. It's... Um, it's a great example of terrific, detailed operational history that takes you through uh, the planning of these German military campaigns uh, and then down to sometimes in, into the tank turret, literally with with the German units that are advancing into the Caucasus. Uh, but it's also an important book that takes a, a broader view. It's part of Citino's effort to define the German way of war, an, an effort that he undertook in an earlier book of that title, that he now makes uh, specific by looking at this case study of the German campaign of 1942. And it's both a a convincing book in its own right, but it helps, I think, to strengthen um, Satino's earlier argument about this broader topic of a a German way of war. Uh, If you want to know what that German way of war is, you could read the earlier book. um, You could Listen to the interview. We, it's one of the things that we discuss in this interview. But that's just one element of what I hope you'll find is an engaging interview and what is certainly a fascinating book. Enjoy. Uh, hello, and welcome to another installment of New Books in Military History. Uh, with me today is Robert Satino, author of the book Death of the Wehrmacht, The German Campaigns of 1942, uh, published by the University of Kansas, and it just came out in a paperback edition, so it qualifies as a new book. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Rob.
0: Oh, thanks so much, Jay. It's wonderful to be here.
1: Um, We'd like to give the authors a chance to tell us a little bit about themselves, and especially how you came to to write the book that we're going to consider today.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Well, uh, I have uh, been teaching university-level history for a pretty long time now. I got my Ph.D. in 1984 out of Indiana University. You know, at the time, uh, there's a lot of talk about the, uh, about the incredible shrinking field of military history, but, uh, boy, the mid-1980s kind of seemed to be the epicenter of it. And with that classic sense of timing that has characterized my whole life and career, that's the time I chose to become a military historian. Yeah. I, I received a, a fair amount of in- encouragement, uh, thankfully, from my advisor at the Indiana, Barbara Yelovich, who was a wonderful woman and a fantastic scholar who had some interest in the military side. And you know, she really did, I think, see history as a... as as a muse that that one had to follow whether, whether it was going to make you rich or or whether, uh, whether it wasn't. And, and I I really tried to take that from her. Something I think as I look back on those days at Indiana, I think about more and more. So there I was as a, a military historian in the mid 1980s, uh, no, no one was really getting hired, but, but perhaps military historians were getting hired less than others. I I worked at a fairly small school, Lake Erie College, when I got started. Uh, my big break, uh, I still look at it that way, in 91, uh, was a, a Eastern Michigan University, a big state school with a decent budget and, and a, still a pretty nice place to work. Uh, taught there until quite recently and I spent the last two years at the Military History Center at the University of North Texas. So that's kind of a career outline. In terms of scholarly interests, um, I-, I discovered something as I, the more I looked at the, the history of, of modern military operations in particular, and, and, and it's going to sound funny perhaps to our listeners, there was a lot of talk about the German military and, and what the what the various German armies, Moltke's uh, Army of Unification or the Kaiser's Army in World War One, or the Wehrmacht in World War 2 you know, just what they had brought to the table in terms of innovation or in, in, in terms of military qualities. There's a lot of talk on that. Blitzkrieg was on everybody's lips, but, but I noticed that very few scholars and uh, uh, others who are analysts who are writing on, on these topics uh, really could read German, and that was something that I happened to have picked up in graduate school. I I wanted originally to become a historian of Weimar Germany study the great playwrights of the 1920s. But I didn't do that, but the German I learned as a graduate student really came in handy. And so, if I have brought anything kind of to the table as a scholar in Death of the Wehrmacht and, and my, my previous list of books as well, it's just that I'm pretty well grounded in the German sources—the professional literature of the German military, for example, the articles published in the weekly military Volkenblatt, the kind of semi-official organ of the various German armies, dating all the way back to the Napoleonic period—and so that's, I, I find that, you know, as I as I look at my own books and what I like about them, I, I guess is is that they. They are grounded in a literature that not very many other scholars are are conversing with. I I could name some people who are, uh, Rich DiNardo, Jim Corum, Dennis Showalter, uh, probably leaving out some some very good scholars and some very good friends who are going to listen to this. i so, <laughs> give me a phone call right now, uh, but uh, that that's I, th- th- there are some other ones who do it, but but there are not too many of us. We're a small happy band, I guess you might say, of German military historians who feel conversant enough in the German sources to to make them a kind of centerpiece of our work.
1: Yeah, and it's really no surprise to me that Yelovich uh, would push you in the direction of military history or I guess maybe allow you to move in that direction. I think a lot of really great military history comes from people who, who maybe come at it from different angles or who have – There's, I think the interest is greater than we military historians sometimes are, are willing to admit.
0: Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about it. Uh, but, but when you, as on a personal note at Indiana, when you got, um, Barbara Yelovich as your advisor, you also received her husband Charles. Uh, between the, and vice versa, if Charles was your advisor, they were, they were towering figures in the history of Eastern Europe, in particular at Indiana University in those days. And, uh, Charles had a mess of books. I, I used to say seven and Barbara had 14, but that, that number might have increased while I wasn't looking. They seemed to multiply if you turned around for a minute. So they were diplomatic historians, and Barbara was especially a diplomatic historian. And of, of course, it should be axiomatic that, that to be a diplomatic historian, one would have to know something about the military side, and I might add that, uh, vice versa, it, it would seem to be axiomatic. We are also specialized, Jay. You know, that's the bane of the modern academy, I suppose, that we're also specialized. That, that perhaps we pay lip service to those those qualities more than than actually follow them. But it is something to to think about. And I think as military historians in particular, it's in our interest to cast the net as broadly as we can conceptually in our works. Mm-hmm.
1: And we'll have to talk about Ernst Toller or these uh, these playwrights from the 20s some other time, I suppose.
0: Sure, I mean, that'll be, that'll, nice be the, that'll
1: be the the next podcast. <laughs> yeah. we, have, we do have a I think we have a network on theater. I think that's up and running too. Maybe we can squeeze one in over there. Fantastic. Uh, the book, The Death of the Wehrmacht, is in some ways a sequel to your your other more recent book on the German way of war. Do you want to talk about mm-hmm. how maybe the, this one developed specifically out of your your thesis from that book?
0: I'll be happy to. Uh, if, German Way of War was an interesting experiment for me. I, I'd written a lot, uh, but always on on the the, the modern period. Uh, modern, however, you want to construe that, going back to Napoleon or perhaps Moltke in terms of modern warfare, or or want to simply say twentieth century. That, that's been my uh, that's been my scholarly wheelhouse. Um, German Way of War was a was an attempt to go a lot further back and to look at the rise of Prussian and German war making since the days of the Great Elector in the seventeen in the seventeenth century, the sixteen hundreds. What I was looking for was, was were, there, were there operational patterns that we might call a form of military culture, I suppose, used specifically in that sense, operational military culture, that characterized German operations, Prussian and German operations from that early period up until the, uh, up until the Second World War. Um, I, I think I found some. I, I, those would be, I suppose, a, a very high uh, sense of aggression, an independent-minded officer corps, the, the search, no matter what the operational problem was, the search for a concentric attack in order to solve it. Um, so I, I trace those those things again and again and again. And, and the point I'm trying to make in German Way of War and then uh, Redux in, in uh, Death of the Wehrmacht is that very often – Uh, armies, I'm studying the German army, but I suspect this is true for other armies and the people who study those armies seem to confirm it in their own work. Armies often conceive of wars in in, in ways that that are not not necessarily invented yesterday or or are not simply a, a rational analysis of the current situation. There is a heritage going back decades and and, and more than a century or in some cases many centuries uh, of, a, of a, a kind of a heritage passed down from previous generations to the current generation of, of officers. You know, in, in, in German way of war, not only did I look at the – Great Elector, all the way up to to Hitler. I, I looked at the officer corps of all those various armies, and the thing that strikes one most simply is that they're often not just similar people; they're the same family names: the Zeidlitzes and the Monsteins and and the and the Moltkes and and other names that just recur again and again and again. So I, I don't. I, I guess the point is I'm not trying to throw up the Enlightenment here, but I I don't really believe. That one can draw up a list of principles of warfare that are, that are applicable to all times and all places. I, I think very often, uh, military officers like, like, like any professionals are in a kind of, of box. It's assumptions and expectations and default settings which they may be only dimly aware at the time. And, and so, if, if I may, you know, cross now from German Way of War to Death of the Wehrmacht, in, in early 1942, the, the German army had been it had just gone through the worst six months, in it's maybe its entire history. It had been smashed in front of Moscow in the
1: December 41. Jena was pretty rough too. Uh, say again, please? It, the, the Jena was pretty rough too. It had its moments. <laughs> I'm thinking in terms of of, of overall casualties, but yeah,
0: there, there's certainly it had its ups and downs over the over the uh, long duration. But but, early in nineteen forty two the the Wehrmacht had to decide you know what to do. It had taken this this thrashing in front of Moscow. It had suffered a million casualties and a war that had so far inflicted very few casualties on it. Um, the Americans were now in the war uh production German production was about to be dwarfed by those of its, by that of its enemies. It was already drafting younger and younger men into the ranks. We sometimes say the Nazis did that in 1945, but really they were already doing it in 1942. All the indicators were negative, and and of course, you know, you put the finest minds in the German military, and then Adolf Hitler's in the mix too, so we we can't ignore that. But you put these staff officers together, and what under Franz Halder, the chief of uh, the general staff, and what did they come up with? They come up with a plan for another offensive. I mean, it, it's it, to me by the time I wrote Death of the Wehrmacht, it had become so predictable that I was no longer surprised. But if ever there was a time for an army to to take stock of itself and 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 as I like to say, haul out the actuarial tables, uh, what do we have? What can we afford? What are we likely to achieve? And then plan with, within those boundaries. It was early 1942, but the Wehrmacht in that year and this is the narrative of Death of the Wehrmacht, the book. In that year, the Wehrmacht not only carried out an offensive into the southern sector of the Soviet front, that would be the uh, uh, Operation Blue towards, towards Stalingrad, it carried out another major offensive uh, in a completely different direction uh, into the Caucasus uh, to seize Soviet oil. That was Operation Edelweiss. At the same time, you had Rommel leading a major offensive over the Egyptian border and, and apparently irresistibly driving towards Suez uh, until he was stopped. So that's what the... That's not what every army would do when it was in the the Wehrmacht shape in 1942, but it's it's all too typically what the Wehrmacht uh, decided to do was launch offensives all across the front in every possible direction at the time when when it, arguably it it should have been um, you know pulling on the reins a little bit more. But again, that's just not the way that army. And anyone expected it to, I suppose, just hadn't been paying attention up to then. It's not the way that army uh, played the
1: game. Well, That's one of the things that really pleased me about this book is the way that it took the idea from the German Way of War and really um, went down into the weeds and analyzed it in the in the context of basically a single year. I mean, it, it overlaps a little bit, but basically this critical um, single year. And it, it made me, in some ways, more convinced about the argument you were making in German Way of War, mm. which, because it was so broad, um, I think mm. probably was not as not as convincing as this one.
0: Yeah. You know, I'd I'd, uh, I'd plead guilty to, to well. First of all, accept the compliment for the second book, and 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 plead understanding at least to your your claim about German way of war. People ask me about. I actually probably talk about German way of war more than Death of the Wehrmacht. Death of the Wehrmacht is a is a pretty, as you say, nitty gritty look at 1942. And German way of war is is a, a huge look at, at at many many centuries. I I always tell people, but when I'm questioned about German way of war, Jay, that no one in the room is is more aware of the you know the potential pitfalls of writing that book and 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 some areas in which the argumentation even as I look back on it it came out in five some ways in which the argumentation could have been strengthened um you know I was worried german way of war i i i've been overboard just went overboard been over backwards to say over and over again in that book that not saying the german way of war was necessarily any good or that it was better than anybody else's i, I don't believe in an essentialist argument that the Germans have some kind of special genius for war, to quote the famous book title by, uh, by Colonel Dupuy from many, many years ago. You know, they've been pretty good at it. You already, you already dropped the Jena bomb into this conversation. <laughs> they've had moments when they've been very, very bad at it. They've won and they've lost. Like, like any, like all the great powers who take part in many wars, you win some and you lose some. It's the, the uncertain nature of the, of the venture. But, but I was worried about – and I'm only saying I thought the Germans were wonderful because I, I think their way of war was, was, was pretty blighted, actually. I think it missed higher areas that are important to modern war-making, thank God. Um, even more so than saying I thought they were good at it, I was just worried that I was going to appear to be someone who only looked at German history and thought of military history. You know. That, that, that will start with, uh, I don't know, Arminius back in the right. Teutoburger vault <laughs> and go through Charlemagne because he's a German too in a sense and, you know, and then bring it all the way up to, to the collapse in the Bure bunker in 1945. And it's not really what I was trying to do. I wasn't trying to endorse the way of war nor link the Germans particularly with it. It happens to be the European culture with which I am most familiar, the historical literature with which I am most familiar, but other people have written ways of war uh, books for other uh, armies as well. Russ Weigley, who who started this all uh, back in the 1970s with his famous American way of war, and since then, uh, Richard Harrison, Russian way of war. Brian Lynn uh, at Texas A and M has never written a book called "The American Way of War," but essentially he has done. The, that's the that's the the sort of scholarly field he's plowing as well. And there there are a number of others. So, you know, if you do, if you lay it out there for three hundred years, you're, I, I'm certain I could look through that book today and find a couple of uh, what I like what I like to call "howlers" things that seem convincing to me at the time, but but might not now. But well, that, I'm, that's I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. No, you're. I was just going to make the point that I'm very, I owe a lot to my publisher, the uh, University Press of Kansas. They're a really good publisher of military history and they let authors, you know, take those kind of chances, uh, with a 300, 300 year pageant of German military operations and then, then they let me turn right around and, and, and write a, a book in which, you know, it seems at times we're tracing the path of every bullet on the course of the Wehrmacht towards the Volga and it's, you know, rendezvous with disaster at Stalingrad. So they're very, very different books and I, I'm, I'm one thing I'm going to try to keep doing as I publish in the future is just, you know, tr- try different things. Uh, my, my friends have been kidding me. He said, where do you go after Death of the Wehrmacht? <laughs> What's the name of the next book? <laughs> the real Death of the Wehrmacht. Just the son of Death of the Wehrmacht. <laughs>
1: 1943, <laughs> the real Death of the Wehrmacht, right?
0: The real Death of the Wehrmacht. I was just kidding the first time around. So, But I was I I, I enjoyed doing that to myself to to do write a big synthetic piece and then to get a little more nitty-gritty. It was, it was interesting intellectual exercise for me as a writer.
1: Well, I'm happy to have given you that soapbox uh, to talk a little bit about German Way of War, and I certainly didn't want to sound um, uh, overly critical of the book. I, I have an enormous tolerance for uh, books like that that really are, are- Obviously thrown out there in order to generate a reaction and to get people's uh, attention, and and to right. quibble about this or that detail in a, in a book of that scope is a little bit uh, uh, petty. And that's w- one of the things I said that pleased me so much about Death of the Wehrmacht is that yeah. it, 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 you know, there's much less to quibble about here because you've taken it yeah. down um, at this operational level and really uh, provided us with lots of detail. So that's uh, just for the
0: board. record. Um, yeah, just for the record, I, I get emails all the time about Death of the Wehrmacht saying that I, I've. I've placed the 16th Panzer Division one mile, uh, to the west <laughs> when it should have been one mile to the east. So, um, the, the, the Quibley, you know, I, I find part of the fun of writing a scholarly book and nowadays in the age of email is you, you throw it out there and you're not just waiting for the review to show up in the Journal of Military History or the, or the American Historical Review, you know, everybody gets it and they, they, they give you their opinion right away. When you delve into the operational, uh, Jay, you know, you're, in some sense, not only speaking to other scholars, there's a huge bunch of, of buffs and reenactors out there who often you know know quite a bit about about what they're talking about and so you have, you have to best be ready for that kind of thing too and I've certainly had my share of it uh, and it's been kind of interesting with the with death of the Wehrmacht as well.
1: I've said this in other interviews, too. I think one of the interesting things about military history is the multiple audiences that you have, not only the, the scholarly mm-hmm. audience, but the the the, pop, the popular audience, but and then also a professional audience of in the military bureaucracy. Um, and I would like to return at some point to talk about how you maybe see this book um, speaking to that particular audience, because I couldn't help resisting, especially in the, the discussion of Rommel, um, picking up some echoes of maybe some contemporary issues that, the, for example, mm-hmm. the American Army might be facing but let's let's talk a little bit first about the uh, the meat of it i mean i think it's as as we've said it's focused on the campaigns of 42 and one of the things that you point out about 1942 is the and i'm not sure if irony is the right word but the the peaks that the wehrmacht experiences and the depths uh, to which they sink by the end of the year make make a convincing argument that this year is really the the pivotal one mm-hmm.
0: the um, what i was I've always known the outlines of the 1942 campaign. I'm a world war. I'm a historian of World War II. I'd like to think I know the outlines of every major campaign. So I studied it uh, as, as deeply as I had to for for Death of the Wehrmacht. However, I, I didn't realize that there is kind of a narrative sweep to this book. And and uh, I'd like to think I had something to do with it. But I. But it's probably more due to the to, to Cleo, the muse of history, who was more to do with the narrative sweep. I mentioned earlier uh, about all three of those big campaigns. And, and once again, it's the Caucasus and, and North Africa, but and also, as everyone knows, the, the, the great city fight inside Stalingrad. In, in each one of those campaigns, this, um, this under-motorized, under-man-powered, tired, and, and relatively poorly equipped force, I'm talking about the Wehrmacht, compared to its enemies on all fronts. It's, it's, it, it was under, under-equipped compared to the enemies it was facing. Managed to come pretty darn close to all its objectives, and and I I didn't want to write it in some kind of triumphalist sense, like wasn't that amazing? Um, if if the Wehrmacht had had uh, uh, let's say seized the oil fields of the Caucasus in working shape and kept itself in the field for another year or two, or for another year, let's say. You know, that that might have meant only that it was going to be facing the atomic bomb in 1945. Uh, but there's, it, it's impossible for me not to delve too much into the what-ifs and the alternate scenarios because so many other things could have happened. So I, this is not a holy cow. It wasn't the Wehrmacht amazing argument. It's It's more an argument for the uncertain nature of the military venture. In the section in, in which I kind of write that up in the book, in which I talk about how close the Wehrmacht came on all three of those fronts to, to something approaching a significant operational victory, um, I, I immediately reference uh, uh, Clausewitz and, and Clausewitz, you know, talking about war being the, the realm of uncertainty. You simply, as I kidded earlier, hauling out those actuarial tables, you added up the numbers and you, you did some hard bean counting. Uh, This should have been a failed venture from the start, all of those offensives. But just enough had gone right in all of them to to drag the the Wehrmacht on even further into this this, uh, disaster that that was about to engulf it. In Rommel's last great throw of the dice in North Africa, the the offensive at Alam Alfa at the end of August 1942 – yeah. his his reconnaissance units were maybe a half hour away from uh, from Suez. I'd have to look at the exact mileage, but they certainly weren't very far. And uh, you know, open desert. Now, reconnaissance units are not your vanguard. The, the the big battles were happening to the west. But but I'm just making a point that you know a real operational target back in there. I don't know what would have happened had the Germans seized Suez, but I know it wouldn't have been good for the Allies. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll go that far as a as a sort of a prognosticator of the future. Likewise, in the Caucasus, the, the last throw of the dice uh, by the German First Panzer Army uh, towards the city of Orzhonikidze came, came within a single mile of seizing the town. Now, Orzhonikidze is named after, you know, yet another. Soviet secret policemen from the pe- early Bolshevik from the period. The city was and is again today named Vladikavkaz, the, the master of the Caucasus. It's, it leads to the, uh, it, it helps you control the military roads leading through the Caucasus that the Tsar had built to get to the oil fields. Now, I don't know what would have happened had the Germans seized Orjonikiza, made that final mile before they were stopped, but I know it wouldn't have been good for the Allies. And then finally, of course, Stalingrad, the last throw of the dice there for the Germans in November before the great Soviet counteroffensive, uh, you know, saw the German uh, storm, uh, storm troop pioneer uh, combat engineers stopped just a couple of hundred yards from the riverbank, which would have ma- you know, that would have meant the complete conquest of the city. And the Germans then perhaps could have redeployed units um, rapidly to face that Soviet counteroffensive north and south of it, and perhaps in some sense blunted it. Again, I don't know what would have happened, but, but operational victory was very, very close there. And that, I, I think you add all this up. An army that, you know, in the Caucasus, for example, you you send an army a thousand miles from its supply bases and feed it a hot meal once a month and uh, face it with enemies who outnumber it two or three times. And uh, all those things that should have, you know, there should have been no problem at all. But there was just enough things had gone right and just enough uncertainty in that conflict on both sides to bring the Germans tantalizingly close to operational success of course, as their own history has demonstrated over and over again, operational success doesn't necessarily mean strategic victory in a war. And that would have had to have been played out. So I tried, I tried not to say if the Germans had done X, they would have won the war. In fact, you won't catch me saying that in any book. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure it's true. I can't think of any one thing they could have done. They probably shouldn't have started the war in the first place. Uh, and I've I've really tried to resist that whole notion of, you know, a perfect plan by which the Germans could have won the war. I think in some sense that's kind of the bane of military history as well as attempting to lecture the historical actors on things they ought to have done.
1: Exactly. Um, Well, there's so many things going through my head. I think the um – you know the the drama of the campaigns that you that you depict I mean without glorifying the Wehrmacht as an institution and certainly you you pay due attention to what is happening behind the front I mean that's not your story, but um, you acknowledge mm-hmm. the the kinds of things that these successes were enabling but the the drama of these the, the drives that you just mentioned, for example, the one on the Caucasus, which is um, relatively little known I think in the mm-hmm. in the literature, even among people who are expert or or at least conversant with that literature. Um, you know that you you talk about this single German tank that ends up on the southern side of the Kuban River. I mean, right. you just you couldn't help but put yourself in that turret at some point and go, "Oh darn!" You <laughs> know, when, you, when internet, you're we can say crap, right? You know?
0: Yes, I said, so when, you, when you're when you're when you're campaigning in this part of the world, of course, you know you're you're crossing over from Europe into Asia, technically speaking. So there was a lone German tank, as I, I think I observed in the book. You know. Uh, marching in the van of the entire Wehrmacht and the first tank across the, across the rivers into Asia. And then of course, you know, the Soviets blow up the bridge and, and then you're all alone, uh, uh, holding a, holding a bridge ahead of one. You know, that, that whole, thank you by the way for the, for the, what you just said about the Caucasus campaign. It's, it's relatively little known. I certainly didn't expect I started writing to the Wehrmacht to spend so much, to be spending as much time on the Caucasus campaign. In most of the histories, it's just kind of there. And, and it's not the drama of Stalingrad. And it looks like the Germans were, you know, a long, long way from all their objectives in the Caucasus. But as, as, as i the more I looked at it, I began to think of the Caucasus campaign perhaps as one of the more important camp, land campaigns of World War Two we should be very familiar today as Americans with uh, with oil wars and battle for oil. And, and this is what the Germans were doing there. There are three big oil cities. Uh, usually, they're usually said to be Maikop, uh, Baku, and Grozny. And the Germans did take one of those three. It's the only objective of that entire 1942 campaign, and including Rommel's in North Africa, the only objective that they actually seized. What we We often hear that the the Soviets had, "You know, demolished Mykhop. They'd ruin, you know set the oil fields on fire and on all their demolitions." And, and those things are perfectly true. But getting a demolished oil field working again is, is is not rocket science. It's not it's not a miracle. It's an engineering feat, and there were no finer engineers in the world than German engineers. And my guess is, if you given them a couple more years, I mean, even less than that, uh, peace and quiet in Mykhop, they'd have got those wells pumping. So. Uh, I found it to be one of the, you know, maybe one of the more, at least for me, eye-opening sections of the book as a writer. And then I, of course, when we write books, we learn as well as, as instruct, hopefully. And I certainly learned my share about the Caucasus campaign in that uh, in that book. The Kuban bridge that the Germans would hold into the next year, you know, that was the Wehrmacht at the kind of end of creation. Uh, as far as most, most Germans were concerned, where the heck is the Kuban? And And... and German magazines uh the Wehrmacht, which is a kind of glossy magazine about you know, the piece of the you know armed forces that was being published during the war you know, They always had a lot of material showing German soldiers in the jungles and lagoons of the of the kuban bridgehead and and uh, the battle south of the the important port of novodoissk and it's it's interesting stuff to me i the more work needs to be done on it. If any of your listeners out there have the correct language chops, which would be, I think, at least German and Russian, and maybe some of the Caucasian languages as well, uh, let's let's get a, a good monograph written on that campaign pronto.
1: Yeah, and I think it, the the campaign also plays an important part in your in your argument because it shows the 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 Wehrmacht getting away from the German way of war, of war. I mean, the first half of the book, which which in some ways we haven't really talked about, is sets up this model of the Bewegungskrieg, right? The the war of movement, the encirclements that the Germans are constantly this concentric style of warfare, and it's in the Caucasus that it begun, begins to become eccentric.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, eccentric in a kind of te- technical sense, not in the way we use it as English speakers, you know, to mean kind of weird or oddball, but eccentric as opposed to concentric, that is with bodies moving away from one another rather than some, that towards some, uh, uh, identified objective. You know, that's, uh, it's an interesting point and, and without, you know, trying listeners' patience here on this, I think it is a crucial point that I've tried to make in all my books on the German way of war. German way of war was, uh, arose out of a certain matrix, and, and that matrix would be Central Europe—a relatively, you know, relatively small marching distances, um, a relatively moderate climate, and a relatively good road network. If you think of what the Wehrmacht had to do to smash the French in nineteen forty, you know, but I don't know, hundred and twenty-mile drive to the to the English Channel. Now, in in, in, in taking that way of war and trying to use it to smash the entire Soviet army in a single campaign in 1941 and then to do try again in 1942. The, the distances involved are, are so vast that, that at some point, uh, you're not going to be carrying out that signature Kessel schloss, which is a concentric maneuver against an enemy body to, to encircle and destroy it. There are too many independent Soviet military formations out there and if you turn in and encircle one or five or ten of them, as the Germans had done repeatedly in 1941, you're going to be offering your flanks to all kinds of trouble of, of uncommitted Soviet uh, forces in other regions. In, in other words, you know, how how do you surround the the, the Soviet army in 1941 or 1942? At uh, surface, it's it's, a, it's an absurd notion, and so. As the 1942 campaign unfolded and the distances became more vast, the Wehrmacht now tasked with holding, for example, the entire great bulge of the, uh, of the Don River. I'm fortunate, Jay, I'm, I'm standing in my, my study, which is just my back bedroom at home, and I have a big wall map of southwest Russia in 1942, the U.S. Uh, military academies middle of this very campaign. So I can quote a chapter and verse on this as I'm staring at the map. The distances involved so vast that at at some point that the movements were by definition going to become eccentric, that is, you know, moving away from one another. And the classic example, of course, is an army heading east, an army uh, group heading east towards Stalingrad and another army group heading south uh, towards the Caucasus. And every single day that campaign lasted, those, those Major German formations of uh, the, the gap between them widened and, and thus left themselves uh, vulnerable to so- well timed Soviet counterstrokes. And the big one, of course, is going to be around Stalingrad. Right? Now, what do you do when you German, German staff officers and field commands can read a map? They can read a map as, any, as well as anyone. You know, you, you fill in your, your uh, Axis satellite armies as your protection on the flanks, and, and thus. You have two German armies, more or less buried inside Stalingrad, Sixth Army and much of Fourth Panzer Army, during the great fight for the city, and on the flanks, 100 miles to the north and 100 miles to the south, you have Romanians, the Third and Fourth Romanian Army. Now I don't, I, I again work overtime in my books. I don't, I don't make jokes about the minor powers. I don't make jokes about the Italian Army or the Romanians or the Hungarians. They were absolutely crucial to 1942. The Germans couldn't have carried out a campaign without them. They had good fighting qualities, some fine officers, some, some, certainly some hardy manpower in, in all those armies. What they didn't have was, was what we would consider to be modern weapons, or at least not modern weapons up to great power standards. And, and so, you know, the, the, this—it wasn't the Romanian's fault that, that the Germans surrounded Stalingrad. It was just the fault of the German operational scheme for carrying out a campaign that had to rely on the minor powers and expect the Romanian army. Sitting out in an open flank somewhere to hold off a massive Soviet armor defensive. It's not the Romanian fault that it didn't work. It's much more the Germans' planners, and of course, you know Hitler's original construction.
1: Well, I'm glad you have the opportunity to to make those points as well, because you do. I think. Um uh, you are quite fair i think to those to those armies not just the romanians but as you said especially the italians in north africa you make the the, the point that they actually fight quite well for uh, yeah. for rommel in certain instances and then and even going back into the campaigns of 41 when you talk about the yugoslav army and you know that they're they're hampered by their uh, the strategic dilemma that they have um as well as equipment but but that you know there's nothing intrinsically bad about the the yugoslav army
0: you know scholars I would make a distinction here. Scholars have rarely written anything mocking of the minor—I mean, respected scholars—anything that mocks the minor armies in World War II. But but there is a general, there's a general discourse out there that somehow the, the the hapless Italians were responsible for the collapse of the German army in North Africa. Rommel couldn't have carried out any of those campaigns if it were not for the Italians. They were the majority of his manpower, certainly for much of the campaign. Their equipment was never quite up to standard, but that might say more about their bravery and intestinal fortitude than it than it would would say the opposite. And and let's take Italy for for example. Um, And I am an Italian American, and I I can crack Italian military jokes all day long. We we did in my family. My father always told me Mussolini was a buffone, a clown. but let's look at the Italian army. This is a relatively underdeveloped e- Italian economy. There's a heavy industrial base in northern Italy, but but certainly I not at the German or, or Soviet standards. And this is a, a country now that has has a field army fighting in Africa alongside Rommel, and a complete field army fighting in the east. The Eighth Italian Army uh, holding a huge sector along the Don River. Every every bound the Germans made further east towards. Stalingrad stretched out this massive flank along the Don, and that had to be held by the Italians. So, you know, there is a reason to to jump ahead to 1943. That there is a reason when when the the campaign in, in North Africa had had been smashed, and and now the Italian the Eighth Army was smashed along the Don. When the Allies showed up in North Africa, the Italians had pretty much had it. That they'd already lost two complete field armies. And, and again, this being a, an economy, is much less well-developed than, than the Germans. So I, I, I usually think, Jay, well, my students probably get tired of hearing me say this because um, I say it every day. I, I think that many times armies are, are operating under systemic constraints. And, I, and, and I'm not sure that manpower of one army is necessarily any braver than manpower of any other army. And I, I do look at things like economy armaments, the missions that have been assigned to these various armies. do say that the Germans were overstretched. Heck, the Italians were overstretched a lot more than the Wehrmacht was. And the Romanians, two complete field armies in the east, they might have been the most overstretched army of all in late 1942. And when the Soviet attacks came north and south of Stalingrad, they displayed it.
1: Well, that gives us a chance to talk a little bit more about Stalingrad because another of the uh, – um, I, w- I don't want to say no- novel features of the book, but is the, the strengths again is the the attention to the operational details of this drive towards Stalingrad. In other words, that's, that's always um, understood under the heading of Operation Blue, but you really break Operation Blue down and show us that in, su- in, in a very real sense, the battle that develops at Stalingrad is not Operation Blue –
0: Great. the The original the original conception um, was to to drive eastward towards Stalingrad, somehow blockade that city, uh, block it off, or, or at least make sure that Soviet forces in Stalingrad could not uh, trouble the flanks of the next phase, which was to be a drive to the south towards the oil fields. Uh, that had not even been designed yet when Operation Blue touched off the drive toward the oil fields. It had the, the details of the operational conception had not been worked out. So it was a pretty complex operation, much more complex than previous German campaigns, and that, of course, might be part of the problem. When, when the indicators are running down, maybe you try to start micromanaging. And it's not just Hitler, but also his chief of staff Franz Halder back in, you know, back in uh, back in Germany. But you were you were going to destroy all Soviet forces west of the Don. The Don describes this huge bend. It it. it it, it, uh, it flows to the uh, to the east and then to the south and then to the west back into the Sea of Azov. So it's a gigantic bend. Soviet forces are going to have to be destroyed. That was sort of phase one. Then there was going to be a lunge for Stalingrad, kind of phase two. Stalingrad was going to have to be blockaded or somehow closed off so the Soviets couldn't use it as a as a base of operations. And then uh, the, the final drive would be this turn south. Now, what happened is that when the Germans launched their, their initial attacks. Right, in, in many cases, they found the Soviet armies melting away in front of them. Uh, pretty top speed flight to the east, uh, all along the front. There's there's debate about where that came from. Uh, Stalin and, and, and Zhukov, and that is the higher command, had clearly ordered it as a way of perhaps saving, uh, exchanging space for time. On the local level, it seemed to have been carried out pretty ineptly, Uh huge stretches of territory were abandoned without a fight. Defensive lines that had been laboriously dug and in involved, I don't know, millions of man hours were, were, were abandoned without a fight. Tons of equipment, airfields with, you know, aircraft parked wing tip to wing tip on them. The Germans were overrunning everything. The, the, the so precipitous was the flight. The Germans didn't surround anybody in the Don They tried at Milarovo, they tried again at Rostov uh German military uh, uh planners have a marvelous word. Both of these were Luftstossen, that is blows into the air. Think of a think of a fighter uh, throwing a punch and his opponent dodges it and so the punch just goes out there and then you're kind of off balance as to what to do next. Hitler uh
1: Sorry, just say that's a great metaphor, that that off-balance uh, fighter, because then that seems to lead to this series of decisions that, that take them right into the city of Stalingrad and um, on this shoestring down into the caucus where more and more units are just stripped away to feed into into the Stalingrad campaign. Yeah.
0: what What happens is there's a... The Germans refer to an Aufspaltung of the campaign, sort of a a dissection of the campaign, or a a slicing in two, I guess would be the best way to put it. And instead of Stalingrad being dealt with in some way first in the Caucasus, then second in sequential fashion – Hitler famously saying that the Russian is finished right now and Halder saying, you know, you're, you it uncommonly looks like it. He says that they're looking at the map and they try to go for every, you know, for both of those at the, uh, at the same time. But you know, they soon realize the drive for Stalingrad stalls off immediately. The caucus's campaign gets off to a roaring start. And as you just mentioned, today, soon forces are being diverted from so to, to restart the drive to Stalingrad. It, you know, it's, um, it's rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You you have, you, you have uh, two field armies, and and you really can afford one. And and if you want to make any progress, you you have to sort of strip one and 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 pile equipment into the other. And the Germans find they have to do that pretty early on into the game already already by August. Um, Sixth Army, that is the major formation tasked with the seizure of Stalingrad. It, it arrives in front of the city and. Blasts into it, and so this fourth panzer army comes up, and it, they, they make progress, but they're, they're never really able to, uh, to concentrate the kind of mass that will dig a Soviet field army out of an impromptu fortification, which is what the city becomes in this part. So you have a German army of formations that get kind of stuck in the Caucasus, just really in the. They've, they've gone from the so-called so called Wald Caucasus, the wooded Caucasus, to the Hoch Caucasus, the High Caucasus, the. Um, uh, from the Appalachians to the to the Rocky Mountains, I guess, in terms of the topography, and that's kind of where they get stuck, and then they kind of get stuck inside Stalingrad, and it's, it's almost predictable. I said there's no pr- principles of war that are good for all times and all places, and let me backtrack on that one because m- maybe there is a principle of war here, and it's called concentration of force. You know, think about what your objective is, and, and fight one war or one campaign at a time. I don't have many laws about, about how war should be conducted, but I think one campaign at a time is, is a good rule, and maybe one war at a time is another good rule, and I think Germany was violating all of those precepts by 1942.
1: Mm. One of the things that's that's striking about the book too is this this army that, and again, we see this in your previous work too on the on Blitzkrieg, an army that really prides itself on, on think, on being a thinking army, right? Auftrags Taktik, the the yeah. evolution of authority to lower levels, the general staff, the the great studies of war, you know, from Clausewitz um, on. It doesn't seem to learn anything in this in this campaign. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have you, you have this great line on page three hundred one. You said uh, about the Red Army turning around at the end of nineteen forty two. You say for three years the Wehrmacht had been a harsh, demanding schoolmaster, dealing out dozens of unwanted lessons to neighboring armi- armies on the subject of Bewegungskrieg, and giving virtually all of them failing grades. Now it suddenly found itself going to school, and yet it and yet you know why doesn't the German army seem to adapt the way the others mm-hmm. do?
0: Good point they, they hadn't no, all they had all of a sudden turned stupid you know I, I, that'll be the obvious you know that I don't know maybe they've been blinded by Hitler and they were no longer no longer seeing reality I, I think what needs to be brought into the mix here, jay, is that there's there are a couple of different traditions within the um within the German military, and certainly that that intellectual tradition is one of them i mean what do I call it the sort of clause of its Moltke, Schlieffen, Zeke—kind of, of tradition. These are some of the greatest military intellectuals of of all time. Th- there's also a real strong tradition of, of a, a sort of irrational side of, of the ability of will to overcome any material obstacles, and that's an equally strong tradition. You know, you go back to, to Frederick the Great, who, who, who taught that all our wars have to be short and lively, and we're all, we're always going to be on the attack, and. You know, Blucher, who once talked about one of his commanders and said he should have fought less and fought more. Uh, the Red Prince of the Wars of German Unification. You're not beaten till so you feel you're beaten, and I didn't have that feeling, talking about a tight spot in the Franco-Prussian War. Um, Dennis Showalter, my, my friend and wonderful scholar at Colorado College, always talks about the sort of muddy boots tradition amongst the German officer corps as well. Guys who got the job done. And I think what the German officer corps was doing by 1942 and certainly into the next year and towards the rest of the war was buttoning the helmet on tight, and they were going to fight to the end. They felt, many of them, that they had not been allowed to fight to the end in 1918. Now, I personally think that's ridiculous, but but that's what I think is not, I think, as important as, as what they thought. They were gonna, they were gonna go down with the ship, they were gonna take the whole country with them, if, if, if that's what it took, but, but as I say, kind of, you know, tightening that, that helmet and just doing what needed to be done and not looking at the, uh, the possibilities of those actuarial tables, but, but remembering again and again that will can get you through where material factors can't. There is a passage in the book and, and, uh, I'd, I'd look it up and get the page number for you, but it's this, when Hitler hears for the first time about the, the encirclement at Stalingrad, I guess it's when Paulus's famous dispatch has just come in. That begins with, you know, the ominous words "Armee eingeschlossen," something you never want to hear in German. The army is surrounded. And and Hitler, you know, there are a lot of things he could have been talking about that night with his with his new chief of staff, Weizsäcker. They could have been talking about the possibilities of a relief or a breakout or the modalities of the air supply effort. Or they could have been talking about a million things. It always struck me that one of her, Hitler's first sentences was, "You know, we have to show strength in adversity. We have to remember Frederick the Great." Uh, normally, as when I started as a military historian, I'd have passed by that that sentence and said, "Oh, Hitler's talking nonsense." The more I came to see it, as I as I studied this, you know, I call this German way of war. It's precisely those moments that I think are most illustrative and most telling. It is important when when Rommel is. Is compared to Frederick the Great's cavalry commander Zidler. Those things are really, I think, essential in building that kind of that kind of tradition, that we military culture that we might call a way of war. But of all the things Hitler could have been thinking about I should have been thinking about the future and how to extricate Sixth Army from the mess, largely of his own making, but, but everybody's making. But instead he was, he was thinking we're going we're gonna to have to – when you say remember Frederick the Great, he's talking about Frederick when his armies were smashed and it looked like all was lost and the miracle of the House of Brandenburg. I, I think those things are really, really important. I think they're more important in military history certainly than I ever thought they were.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned mentioned that military journal that the Germans published, the Militär Volkenblatt, um, uh, whose picture appears on the cover. I think there was a coincidence there where they had Blucher or somebody on the cover of this at the the very moment when that sort of a mentality was taking over.
0: Yeah, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Blucher cover is early 42 or late 41. It was his birthday, but it's also just about the time that the German armies are being smashed in front of Moscow. Yeah. And and I do I firmly believe that that an officer a German officer schooled in the in German military history and schooled in the German military art would would recognize why Blucher was suddenly showing up on the cover of the military Volkenblatt when things were things were getting you know, getting tough.
1: Yeah.
0: Old Blucher, you know, he, there's the old saying he never he never bothered to ask how strong is the enemy. He had a much simpler question: Where is he?
1: Where is he? <laughs>
0: You know, I don't, I I taught it, I taught a year at West Point, and I I taught the German way of war at West Point, and what a wonderful place to teach, wonderful colleagues, and of course, some of the finest students on the planet. And, you know, in telling these stories, there's a tendency that you want to slap a high five when an officer says that. Sometimes officers need need that kind of talk. You also have to have some caution when you tell those stories as well, because with all due respect to Marshal Blucher, he's no longer around to defend himself. It's also an important question sometimes to ask how strong is the enemy?
1: yeah and you mentioned the, the the many disastrous intelligence failures that the germans uh make especially in the east and underestimating the i mean not only the the cap the what do i want to say the resolve the resolve of the soviet army but the just yeah. the capabilities the the, the yeah. equipment that they have the number of tanks
0: yeah i i I made a kind of you know just a sort of a ironic comment you know the Germans thought they were facing whatever i don 't have the numbers with me but they're of course on the boiling We're going six thousand tanks and it was actually more like twenty thousand, and they thought they were facing five thousand aircraft, and it's like twenty-five thousand—some ridiculous figures. And you know, that's not just underestimating your enemy's army; that's missing missing it entirely. <laughs> you know, they identified one of the forces facing them, but not the other, not the other three or four. Hmm. Once again, so I'm just right going to say, it would be it would be easy just to to say, well, their intelligence services weren't as good as they should be, and I'm always interested in why that. Why that might be so, and I think why it might be so is a pretty simple answer. Germans emphasized the maneuver arm. The smartest and best officers and the best and the brightest went into the maneuver arm. They, they didn't go into the logistics services, and by and large, they, they didn't go into intelligence. And the staff officers were constantly asking for a field command. I know not not that unusual in armies worldwide, that everyone wants to get on the field with the troops, but probably more pronounced In the German army than it was anywhere else. And so there are only so many hours in the day to to train and to prepare, and the Germans tended to spend most of those hours on the the art of maneuver rather than the sort of less glamorous, shall we say, less sexy aspects of modern war making.
1: But again, that's part of the culture that develops in these armies that we're that we're talking about. So that's good. Yeah. So well, let me ask you a question, and I, I suppose you could um, sort of plead the fifth on this. But this the, the book originally came out in 2007, and you were yeah. at West Point in 2008 and nine. So yeah. this was available. And there's a passage in early in the book, page 27, where you say there's something incomplete about a way of war that relies on the shock value of small, highly mobile forces and air power that stresses rapidity of victory overall, and that then has a difficult time putting. The country it's conquered back together again, and, and this is this is a point that's reinforced throughout. I mean, as as these guys are racing off into the Caucasus, my question was, well, who's staying behind to run that town that they just overran, or to you know, they're obviously having to administer these um, these territories, or or you would think that they would eventually need to, and obviously we have the example of of Iraq and Afghanistan. There, right. how much did right. that come up, or uh, you know, what what are you trying to say there?
0: Yeah, well, Jay, you're, you're a crafty guy, and you're a pretty good reader, and you're obviously puzzled about what I was trying to say there. It's not been mentioned in most of the reviews. Uh, Lee Eisterlid, a friend of mine who... Reviewed this book, I think, uh course, from Michigan War Studies Review, if I'm not mistaken. He was, I think, one of the first reviewers to, you know, to, to point out that, that I was obviously making a making a commentary about contemporary wars. I, I wouldn't say we spent a lot of time talking on, uh, about that particular topic when I was uh, when I was at West Point, at least in, in reference to the book. But I do have to say I was I was pretty impressed at West Point. There, About the way the cadets are taught military history and military affairs. This is really not much of a straitjacket. And there's a bit, it's as freewheeling a place in terms of debate and in terms of instruction as you're likely to find on the planet. There's a lot of very experienced soldiers. You know, everyone in our military seems to be an experienced soldier today. We're fighting two wars concurrently and have, you know, we're coming up almost on a, well, coming up a decade, you know, in which we've been doing that. So there, there's some, there's a lot of wisdom, you know, that's been accrued by the by the officer corps, and I certainly saw it on display. Yeah, the there is a commentary. Uh, really, I, I think there, Jay, what I'm saying there is a little bit deeper than a simple comment on Iraq and Afghanistan, and it goes back to development within the U.S. Army and U.S. military, I should say, in, in the uh, especially in the '80s, uh, but, but even stretching on into the '90s, in which there was a real there's a real interest in, in both German German and then I would also say Soviet war-making in, in Blitzkrieg, if you will. I don't use the term, but it certainly gets used in Blitzkrieg and in Soviet operational art. And, you know, in a sense, uh, our campaign in in Iraq, well, first in 91 into Kuwait, was a classic example, a real brief campaign, hit hard, hit fast, got in, got out, it was over in 100 hours. I think there was an attempt to kind of reprise that same sort of campaign in 2003 with uh, OIF, Operation Iraqi Freedom One. And, you know, it ran into, a, it ran into some hitches along the way. But, but the biggest hitch it ran into is when, now that you've conquered the country, you have a very small military force. Um, there were probably whole sections of the Sunni, so-called Sunni Triangle in 03 and 04 where I hadn't seen a single U.S. soldier. Uh, and it's where the insurgency was first, you know, first uh, originated and was nurtured and 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 grew, so there's there's no doubt that attempting to. I mean, I understand there were things to learn from the Wehrmacht about high tempo mechanized operations, but I think while the military was doing that in the 80s, then perhaps a little bit more attention should have should have been paid to just what the aftermath of these uh, campaigns were. What happened in the Ukraine is a huge, and, and actually the entire German rear area in in the East is that. There were huge swaths of territory where there were very few German soldiers. The get marshes were probably hardly being patrolled at all, and thus Soviet partisan activity was, was able to grow up all over the place. Germans didn't help uh, that, you know that. Uh, development. They, they were shooting people wholesale from the moment they m- marched into the uh, Soviet Union, uh, and, and of course that drove more and more, more and more uh, folks into the hands of the partisans. There's a notion that the Germans had been nicer; that might not have had as much partisan activity. And while I suppose that's true, I still think they would have wound up with a pretty good amount of it. So, so what they had to do was often, you know, conquer areas and then uh, often reconquer them. And of course they reconquered them in the, in the most brutal and disgusting fashion you can possibly imagine. They, they, they killed civilians wholesale. You know, it's not a development that started later in the war, or, or that started earlier in the war and then trailed off. It was pretty much part of Operation Barbarossa and the war in the East from the from the very beginning. So, I, I think um, what the army calls you know phase four operations they're pretty crucial. Phase four, in other words, how to pacify something that you've, you've already overrun. I think they're crucial. I understand systemically why they get pushed off. if phases one through three, you know, preparation and deployment and actual war fighting. If they fail, then you're never really going to get a chance to go to option or to to phase four. So I understand why they get pushed off, but I also understand why armies have uh, so much difficulty sometimes in holding territories they've already conquered.
1: Yeah, I mentioned that professional audience that military history has and, and this I mean for obvious reasons there's this desire for the lessons of history, but as as your book shows and as you've just described, there are lessons and then there are lessons and sometimes they're yeah. they're they're conflicting. So it's right. um one of the part of what makes military history so interesting. Well you know that, that oh, Go
0: will yeah, go, yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was gonna give you a chance to talk a little bit about what you're working on now. What's the oh. what's the next book? Where are you going from here?
0: No, know, uh, Jay, I have to say, I'm sorry for talking over to you occasionally. You know, you're speaking to an Italian, and I just have that gift of gab. So if, you, if you have an extra four hours, I can probably do that, too. Uh, right now, uh, I, I am – you were kidding about it earlier, but I am looking a book on all fronts in the ETO in 1943. So I, I believe the Germans had lost any possibility of, of even, a, even a compromise victory by, by late 1942, and maybe even earlier. I'm I, 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 I We'll never know, and, and, and we can argue it back and forth. I know people have staked out very firm positions, but I always try to keep that as plastic as possible. But I will say this, by, by 42, the notion that Germans are going to win World War II or win the ETO is, is, is pretty much a fantasy. So how does, how does an, an army, and especially an officer corps, soldier on in 1943 when they know they're fighting a losing war? There's a repost in the east. Manstein manages to recreate, uh, to recreate a kind of cohesive front of, by March of 43 after the disaster at Stalingrad. Uh, this is just at the time that the Allies, of course, have landed in North Africa, and the fighting in Tunisia is coming to a head. The Germans meet the Americans for the first time. Catherine Pass. Um, there's the Great Offensive at Kursk, the Germans' last real offensive blow on the Soviet Union, at least on that scale, in July. same time, the Allies are landing in... Uh, in Sicily, uh, there's a couple of Soviet, massive Soviet reposts after Kursk that still don't get the attention in Western literature that they should, uh, and the big retreat of the Germans to the Dnieper River. Uh, that's just at the time the Allies are landing in Italy. Uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a book that I think, has as I started writing it, has reinforced in my mind again and again something that we should all keep in mind that these fronts are interrelated and attempting to write the history of the battle of Kursk without looking at, at German security concerns in the Mediterranean uh, is missing a big part of the picture. And I might also say, you know, vice versa, you, you know, there, there are moments, uh, Jay, that I've looked at in 43 in which every single day, no, every single hour seems to bring some major crisis into the Fuhrer headquarters in Roethlisburg, East Prussia. This is a very small staff. It's, uh, as General Kilimanstag once observed, he was on the operations section of the general staff in World War II. The entire operation staff of the German army was 17 officers at the time, you know, compared to the sort of bureaucratic machines that the Western powers and even the Soviet Union were forming at the time. Um, and how 17 guys kind of deal with multiple crises – uh, of flying into headquarters from 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 various parts of the globe in the in the ETO, you know, from from Casserine Pass to Curse and a lot of material in between, a lot of territory in between. It's been a it's been a fascinating book to uh, to write, and I'm just about you know coming to an end of the manuscript process, and then I'll be sending it off to my publisher. I think he already knows about it, but the, some of the folks at the University Press of Kansas and see if they're interested. in it.
1: Well, I'm sure they will be. Um...
0: What do I name it, Jake? Since we kidded about this earlier, yeah. what do I name this book? If you if any of your listeners have any suggestions, please feel free to drop by my email and let me know.
1: I think that's a great idea because, you know, in a sense, like the Wehrmacht, you've you've fought yourself into an impasse with this title from 1942. <laughs> it's a great title, but then it does kind of uh, tie your hands in terms of where you go from there.
0: Uh, I mean, yeah, we'll we'll come up with something suitable, I hope.
1: And I think it points – it indicates that I, I overstated my point about the Germans not adapting because, of course, they do adapt and what – you know, they, they fight on for three more years after 1942 and, and are quite – remain quite dangerous because of uh, those 17 guys and the other people yeah. that, are, that are thinking about how to solve this, this uh, uh, incredible problem that they face. Of course, know. you know uh, – yeah, No, no, go ahead. A, a, a small
0: staff – is able to make decisions very rapidly. And that's one thing probably the Wehrmacht always did pretty well. It had its moments and was sort of tied up and tied itself in knots months before the Kursk Offensive. But but having a relatively small staff is, is a way of getting things done quickly. The, Martin Van Kreveld a long time ago, wrote a, a really good book on the German army called Fighting Power. And it's a translation, of course, of a of a concept, a word that the German army had already itself. It has Kumpfkrasch. It has fighting power. It might not be thinking clearly. Its strategic situation it might be going to the dogs. The, the logistical pipeline is drying up. Somehow the Germans always manage to to nurture a certain amount of comfort, cross, fighting power. And, of course, you just said they remain dangerous to the end, and they remain dangerous to the last day of the war. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm. Uh, I want to plug uh, my next interview, and in part to make you aware of the, the the book because it it relates to your especially your earlier work on Blitzkrieg. But I'm going to interview uh, Matthias Strohn, who just is um he's at the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst, and his book yes. on the German Army and Defense of the Reich just came out with uh, with Cambridge, and that's a. I
0: just I just saw an answer, and it's on my to do list. There's no doubt.
1: Very good. I met him in the archive back in 2006, and, and uh, I think it'll be an interesting work. Um, but I want to ask you, and partly uh, so that you do my job for me, what what new book should I read next? Like what what just came out that you're excited about?
0: Just hmm. hmm. a uh, just because I, I do deal in the operational, uh, um, and and those are the kind of books that whenever anyone asks me, and it was a good book, I, I tend to think of the operational first. I was really impressed uh, with David Stahl. Uh, and his book, which came out with Cambridge, I want to say a year or two ago now, called Operation Barbarossa and Germany's Defeat in the East. Stahl is a, a, a what I would call a sharp cookie. I, I don't know him, never met him, so I only know him by by this book and and another uh, some of the pieces I've read by him. Um, it's a real it's a real demolition of the notion that the Germans had any chance to win the war in 1941. That, that while they, they managed to get close to Moscow on a map, they only managed to do so by, by stripping themselves bare and leaving the army, you know, even much more vulnerable to the eventual Soviet understroke than they would have been. It it indicts everybody and everything about the German way of war and German methods of war making in 1941, and I can't recommend it to your, uh, to your listenership highly enough. So, again, yeah. David Stahl, S-T-A-H-E-L, Operation Barbarossa and Germany's Defeat in the East. Really good stuff.
1: Great. Well, I'll I'll put that one on my list, and while we wait for your next book, uh, we can read that one. Great. Great. Well, I will uh, sign off now, and uh, thank you again for the interview.
0: Oh, it's fantastic, Jay. I, I'd love to do this again sometime, and you've given me even more uh, impulse to finish up this book, so I can do it again sometime.
1: This has been New Books in Military Histories interview with Robert Satino, author of Death of the Wehrmacht, The German Campaigns of 1942, published by the University of Kansas Press originally in 2007 and recently reissued in paperback. Thanks for listening.